For the first time in U.S. history, the snow crab season has been canceled and the red king crab harvest has been shut down for the second year in a row. Cairo News Radio's Chris Martin looks into why the seasons were canceled and how it's affecting families in the industry. Jamie Gowen is the executive director for the Alaska Bering Sea Crabbers. She says that in 2018, there were a lot of small snow crabs in the ocean and things were looking really good. And then the oceans got warm in 2018 and 19. And what they think happened is that those crab required more calories. So they didn't have enough out there to survive given how many were out on the grounds and the population essentially collapsed. Gowen says there was increased disease in the crab population as well due to the warming waters. It'll take the current small snow Snow crab three to five years to grow to a fishable size, but king crab have been on the decline for over 12 years. Gowen says Alaska Bering sea crabbers have been pushing for more conservation efforts to protect both of the crab populations. We think the population and that our fisheries are closed in part due to climate change. That's definitely playing a role, but there's many factors playing a role, including fishing impacts from other sectors as well that are continuing to impact the stocks even when our fishery is closed and we're not fishing on them. She says it's going to take a coordinated effort to save the industry. I think it's going to take national policy change in the U.S. for how we do fisheries management, how we incorporate science, and how we adapt more rapidly to changes that are happening. Meanwhile, the fishermen and women are suffering because there is essentially no income. It's been devastating for our fishermen. So we have roughly 60 vessels that fish in this fishery in the Bering Sea, and many of them are second and third generation fishing families. They're small, independent businesses. So these are long-term jobs that people have, and they've lost everything this year. I know some of our guys are having to sell their homes, their boats are going to be going up for sale, people are going to be going bankrupt from this. There is a federal program to help fishermen, but Gowen says it won't come soon enough to save many of the businesses. It's not like farmers get where they get rapid money when a crop fails, or like a community gets after a hurricane hits and FEMA gives them quick money. In the fishery disaster process, it takes two to four years to get money into the pockets of fishermen. It's not just affecting the fishermen, but the communities and businesses that are supported by crab. It's been about a $500 million ex-vessel revenue loss for our fishermen. When you look at the effects on the communities and support businesses like shipyards and welders, it's over a billion dollars effect on the economy. Gowen says they're trying to push Congress to speed up the fishery disaster process to save these families' livelihood. Make sure we give small businesses a chance to work in fisheries. I mean, it's the American dream to be able to, like a farmer, be able to have your piece of the ocean and be able to go out there and harvest food for not only your family, but for others as well. Chris Martin, Cairo News Radio. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Back when Dr. Gordon Cohen and I started doing these weekly segments, one of our first topics was the opioid epidemic and uh, just how bad it was. And now things seem to have changed. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. And now we have the CDC, Dr. Cohen, saying that we have gone overboard with protecting people from opioid products. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Dave. We have come full circle. And what's interesting, I still remember our conversation from that very first segment when I expressed concern that patients would ultimately suffer. They essentially, at the time, they were saying doctors were overprescribing opioids, and that was responsible for the opioid epidemic in this country. And Congress was looking at it and so forth. But 
you know, I expressed concerns that doctors weren't in fact responsible and that it would ultimately cause a problem because physicians would be fearful of appropriately treating patients. And there were new guidelines that were released. And now we've come full circle. And in fact, that's exactly what's happened. Patients are essentially being underprescribed medication and are suffering as a result. And now they're actually saying people are in fact turning to illicit street drugs like fentanyl when they don't get adequate pain relief. And so there really was never a balance struck anywhere in the middle. What prompted the CDC to, to issue this warning now? I mean, have you in your own practice seen evidence of this? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I'll tell you a, a story of, uh, that happened to a, a friend of mine who had undergone surgery for a uh, lung tumor. And so they you know, did the surgery by making a cut in the side of his chest and going in between his ribs and you know, spreading them apart to get to the cancer and cut out that part of his lung. And uh, after surgery, he was only given a drug called gabapentin and ibuprofen for pain. Now, gabapentin is not an opioid. It can help with pain, but it's certainly not a painkiller. And that's a relatively painful incision to get. Yeah. And then a week later, he got COVID and was coughing his head off and was miserable. Had he been given opioid pain medication, he wouldn't have had to suffer in the post-op period. And then it was exacerbated by all the coughing that came from the, the COVID infection. And the coughing would have been suppressed by uh, the opioids as well. So, you know, he certainly wasn't done any favor. And that's the problem when you make doctors fearful for prescribing narcotic pain medications. So because of these guidelines, which were intended to prevent opioid addiction, doctors were just afraid to prescribe the appropriate amount of painkillers? I think it was more that doctors were concerned about, you know, the risk to their license uh, and even getting in trouble with the federal government because... Mm -hmm. Our DEA licenses are issued by by the federal government, not by the, the, the state government. OK, for for relatives of people who have undergone surgery and can see this happening, can see that their loved one is in pain and not getting enough medication. Do they have the ability to raise this issue with the doctor and get some more help? They do. But what's happening is that. I mean, it's being described as doctors are in some cases basically uh, abandoning patients and just cutting them off without having a thorough conversation about the patient's individual circumstances. If opioids are taken in appropriate doses mm -hmm. and not overdone, they are safe. But like anything else, you take too much and they can be dangerous. One of the things that led the CDC to look at this was that apparently they have identified some uh, disparities in care where black patients receiving prescription opioids are less likely to be referred to a pain specialist mm -hmm. than white patients and black patients are more likely to receive lower doses of opioid medications for their pain. So the CDC feels like these disparities in access to treatment are actually driving up the overdose rates amongst uh, black and Native American people. Yeah. And it sounds like because of the publicity about how minority groups are disproportionately affected by this, doctors, either consciously or unconsciously, are cutting back on the pain medication for those groups. And then uh, perversely, it makes the problem worse because they turn to more dangerous drugs. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, the fact of the matter is I shouldn't feel uncomfortable prescribing narcotic pain medications to patients who've had surgery if, in fact, they need it. And doctors in general do feel uncomfortable now. You know, so much focus and attention and really blame have been placed on physicians and the medical community at large for creating this problem, where in fact, I think as now the CDC is saying, it's probably not the case. It's probably the other way around. Mm. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And here is CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. So it looks like big tech got it wrong. They were thinking that the, the pandemic rules would last forever. Yeah, this is like the schadenfreude alert, right? You know, um, so here's the thing. A year ago, we saw new all-time highs in so many of the big tech companies and small ones as well. So if you just wind the clock back, it's November 2021, tons of new highs, the NASDAQ composite puts in a new high, the NASDAQ 100 a new high. And there was a real bet that was on the table. And this is the bet, that the pandemic accelerated the trend towards a full online existence, and that would continue in the future. And I think that it is true that I think they got it right. The pandemic did accelerate a lot of the trends that were in place. But the next part, of which is it will continue as far as the eye can see, that was the wrong part. So the bet on the future growth maintaining that same pace was completely wrong, and it has now been undone by the marketplace. So this is independent of uh, what what the Fed's been doing, uh, supply chain problems. This is This is just a leadership screw up? Well, I think that it began with a Fed problem, which is when you are an investor and you can get a guarantee of having higher yielding investments, it makes putting money into a growth company less desirable. Okay, so that is true. That happened. But these decisions to staff up and make big bets on the future, those were management and it sits squarely on the shoulders of management. And, you know, I think that we see, have seen that in one way or the other, uh, but I think probably the best analysis was Meta, the uh, Facebook's parent, the Meta CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, outlined the problem last week. And he said, hey, you know, the world was rapidly moved online. The surge of e-commerce led to outsized revenue growth. And uh, he here's the quote. Many people, including him, by the way, predicted this would be a permanent acceleration that would continue even after the pandemic ended. I did, too. So I made the decision to significantly increase our investments. Unfortunately, this did not play out the way I expected. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. OK, well, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, what's your assessment? Of, we, we got a, a memo uh, in the newsroom saying uh, basically double and triple check anything you see on Twitter from here on out because uh, <laughs> something's going on there. I mean, is is Elon Musk really capable of, of uh, completely tanking the company? What's going sure. on? Sure. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, what, what, you know, hubris is an amazing thing. And human beings are really kind of fascinating in this way. You can be a genius in running one business and completely tank another one. And we've seen this time and time again. You can even see that there are people who are very successful in business who do a terrible job, say, in politics or in education. And, you know, it's not like everything is so seamless. It does appear 
from the outside looking in that Mr. Musk has really gone off the deep end. And that is my um, psychological analysis of it. Um, And the bouncing around of a billionaire um, trying things out, not trying things out is dangerous. So do I think that this could end up at zero? Sure. Is it probable? No, because I think what's more likely is he kind of gets bored. He had this shiny object. He loses a bunch of money. And even if he walked away and lost some money, he'd still be a billionaire. And who's left to run the company is maybe an adult comes in, a bondholder who starts running the company and says, let's hire someone who an adult to run the company. Okay, but what does this mean for his other companies? I mean, this guy is, you know, sending astronauts into space and uh, trying to recreate the the, uh, electric car market. Uh, Should we worry about those companies, too? Yes. I think if I were a Tesla um, shareholder, I'd be very upset. But, you know, I was upset. I I think you would be upset because anything that takes your eye off the ball is upsetting. But nobody seems to actually be able to uh, be a truth teller because Elon Musk has like a bunch of hangers on in his universe who seem to be uh, telling him what he wants to hear instead of giving him good guidance and good counsel. So whoever those people are who may have been able to say something to him in the past, they don't seem to have the same currency today. And, you know, look, this man is probably brilliant. He really I I can't say yes. I don't know. But like he probably is. He has shown had a great track record. This looks like a dalliance that is going to be expensive and damaging. Maybe he'll pull it out. Maybe he won't. Uh, If I were a betting person, which I'm not, because as you know, I'm a huge wimp. You're a huge wimp. uh, I would say that this is not a place where you want to start you know, putting your thesis to work about his um, acumen. I just think this is a terrible business. It's been a terrible business for a while. It doesn't mean that it can't be fixed. It just means that to fix it, it would need somebody who has a really strong vision, a good leadership team around him or her, and actually a board that is going to hold that person accountable. Yeah. Once again, you were correct. Uh, hold on to your stocks. Don't do anything rash because uh, stocks are like a mood ring. Do I have that right? Yeah, kind of. Um, and, and I would say this. It's been a horrible year for investors, and I will acknowledge that full on. I'm an investor. I don't know. I'm not looking at it. But, you know, the, the difference this year, the real difference is not so much that the stock market's gone down. It's that the stock market has gone down, and so has the bond market. So there's been no place to hide. And as a result, you know, I've been fielding a lot of questions from podcast listeners and radio show listeners who are like, Oh, I'm sitting in cash. What should I do? And this to me is the most frightening piece of of uh, questioning, this line of questioning, which is it means that somebody has made the decision to try to time the market. And it's really hard to time the market. Last week, markets went up, right? The S&P 500 had a great week. The Nasdaq had a great week. So someone said to me, oh, does this mean that everything's done, like the route's over? And I reminded them of one of my favorite horrible things. Sorry to pet lovers what about I'm about to say. There is such a thing called a dead cat bounce. It means that even a dead cat will bounce if you oh, throw it down hard enough. I see. Okay. That so is- that is a that is a way for a very nasty way for investors to say, look, things can go down too much and then come up and still fail. Yeah. So I'm not saying that's what will happen, but you know, the Nasdaq's still down twenty seven percent this year, the S P's down sixteen percent, bonds are down thirteen percent. You know, if you had all of your money in crude oil, you've had a good year. But very few people would take that would ever put that wager on the table. You know, um, I, I, I look at my stock statement and I say, at least I'm not in crypto. Um, for all of you who wanted us to just, you know, go and buy in, um, I guess that crypto isn't a good hedge against inflation. And I guess that de- that a that a decentralized um, commodity 
is dangerous when you actually have fraud. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to go to someone if something went wrong? Mm -hmm. But now you can't. Good luck. And by the way, who predicted all this? You did. Yes. Yes, you did. And and I think and I um, also have been a crypto skeptic, but also allowing for the fact that maybe there's something that happens as I want to be clear. I am shocked that Bitcoin is holding 16,000 right now, because given the news cycle and everything that has happened, one might have thought it was at it could be at 600, not 16,000. <laughs> CBS business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Take care. Does Scott know he sounds like WWJ's Jeff Gilbert in Detroit? <laughs> A little bit, yeah. I thought that was Jeff disguising his voice. <laughs> no. Oh, my gosh. We'll have to play a comparison. Your Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A Navy veteran takes an act of kindness and multiplies it. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. Veterans Day was every day for 80-year-old Navy veteran Kenneth Jerry. To honor those who served, he used to visit this veterans park in Matomidi, Minnesota, just about every morning. Until his mobility scooter broke. That was my life. So once the scooter broke down, you could not get to the no, memorial. No, I was very sad, depressed, depression. And then all that changed. All that changed? Believe me. It changed after he met a stranger in a coffee shop. Her name is Amanda Klein. Every moment you're talking with him, you feel like he cares about you and you want to know more about him. You know, it's just contagious. And she says you can't help, but help him. So after she heard about the broken scooter, Amanda started an online fundraiser. And within days, oh my Kenny got a brand new one. Oh, here we go. They presented me that scooter. I'll never forget it until the day I die. And not just one scooter, but a second super snazzy one. Kenny was set. But donations kept pouring in, and a guy can only use so many scooters. So he's now on a mission to take the kindness bestowed upon him and scoot it forward. Over the last year, Kenny and Amanda have donated more than 50 mobility scooters to veterans in need. Thank you, Kenny! The latest, a surprise for Vietnam veteran Dave Anderson. Dave's disability was getting in the way of walks with his grandson. But not anymore. Oh my! This goodness. is for you. This is for me. What? Now you can do whatever you want. Mission accomplished. But Kenny's fight against immobility carries on. That's my goal, and it will be until the day I die: is to donate scooters to uh, servicemen and women. In the beginning, all Kenny wanted was a way to get down here to honor the fallen. God bless you. And rest in peace. But thanks to the kindness of strangers, he now has a way to honor the living, too. That is Steve Hartman. Seven forty-eight now from the G and Ursula Show, which starts at nine here on Cairo News Radio. Here's G Scott. I'm not going to bring up your prediction. But apparently, uh, Tom Brady can still play football. 
I can't hear. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. We've been having issues with the headphones. Here. We'll just take them off. We're in the same the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, go. to we got you. All right. Here we go. He what I said was, I said that you're G. Scott. Yeah. And you have a show that starts at nine. Oh. And that uh, your prediction was wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know what? My predictions were wrong. I'm going to start off Monday morning on your show with complaining. Okay. Yeah, can sure. I do that? Sure. Is yeah, it, sure. Can I vent right now? Absolutely. It's Monday. <laughs> Yesterday morning, I was complaining about absolutely everything, right? Oh. Number one, it was 6.30 in the morning, and I'm watching a NFL football game. Number so two, the way the game started, the Seahawks did not start off well. I get off to a 14 nothing lead, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and then the field was terrible. The broadcast folks, Rich Eisen and those guys in the booth, I thought they felt like they were high school broadcasters. And then my wife was still sleeping. She's not loyal to the Seahawks. How dare you still be sleep? You call yourself a Seahawks fan? She's still in bed. Come on now. Did you at least have a good breakfast? Did you order donuts or anything? Didn't even have breakfast because ah. my kitchen is torn apart. Oh. I, I, okay, I told you guys I needed to vent. Thank you. You're welcome. Sounds like a rough game for you, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, oh, by the way, they lost, too. Yeah. Um, so, Dave, how was your morning? Well, my morning uh, was spent listening to it mostly on the radio, and then uh, because I did feel sort of depressed, uh, as as did you, I, I tuned into the Broncos game. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> wait, whoa, whoa. He wanted some shot. Wait, 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 wait. Why, why are I you? I tuned into the Broncos. Why game. are you laughing? I'm not when, sure. Wait, no, no, let me get this straight. It was involuntary. You tuned into the Broncos game, yeah. and then you just let out a laugh that I haven't heard in like weeks. Like you just really laughed. Can you tell us why? Well, it, it, it was because uh, the the former Seahawks quarterback was, was had some uh, difficulty against Uh-oh. whatever other team they were playing. <laughs> hmm. I don't uh, know Tennessee Titans, I think. I don't know what's going on in Denver, but I do know this. Um, right now, Denver's offense, uh, I saw this uh, stat yesterday, Denver's offense is dead last in the NFL mm. with uh, scoring points, and Denver's defense ranks number one. And I thought to myself, self that sounds eerily familiar. Where have we heard that before? (laughs) But by the way, if this continues, it will be the first time that an NFL team has done this since the 40s. Done what? Where your offense is dead last and your defense is number one. Oh, that sucks. So what happened with the Seahawks? Were they jet lagged or was it just a bad? Because Tom Brady that good. Tom Brady has some good moments. Mm. I think the biggest reason for what we saw yesterday was third down. Uh, the Seahawks did not convert as well on third down, mm. and the Bronco, excuse me, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers were outstanding on third down. And they ran the ball really well. Uh, the, and they ran the ball really well, something uncharacteristic of them. You used to seeing Tom Brady. Don't get me wrong, Tom Brady did his thing, but they really uh, uncharacteristically ran the ball a lot. In and they got busy. They looked mm-hmm. good, and I got to give hats off to them. What was it? What was the field issue? Is, is was it natural grass? What was it, it was slipping and sliding. Natural g- grass. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. it just it just feels like when when their soccer players come over here, <laughs> right? It feels like we. Uh, 
kind of make sure everything's right for them, the field conditions. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, did you guys see them sliding? I mean, it was it was like a slip and slide mm. that were out there. It was sliding all over the field. And I Are hope- most stadiums here AstroTurf? They're not most, most. Which, yeah. which, by the way, that's yeah. also a complaint as well. You've heard me complain about them needing natural grass, but don't let the grass be that slick like that. But, yeah. but the grass was the same for both teams. True. Right. Yeah. Okay, okay Dave. Okay. <laughs> Why are right? facts? All right. okay? I mean, who need who needs facts when you're letting me? I'm, this is about emotions. Well, this is about day. bitter. When no, somebody's not, depressed, no, typically I, you make I'm them not. feel better. I mean, Dave. I'm glad yeah. the Seahawks have a bye. The, the good news is they're still in first place in the yeah. NFC West division. Oh. That's good news. But just I don't know. I mean, I think that the Seahawks fans and me included, we've kind of gotten used to winning, yeah. and so when they lose, a little bit of a a little bitter taste in your mouth. A little sore loser, a little saltiness. Let's just say it doesn't count because it was overseas, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't count because it was right, not right. on U.S. territory. So, right. so, so, Colleen, yeah. um, I just want to make sure you were awake, right, ma'am? You were awake on Sunday? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had the worst week of my life, so I slept all weekend. Oh, oh, I'm sorry about That's that. Right. That's right. I, did. I don't want to bring it down. No, it's no, okay. No. We're surviving. Well, I mean, I already started your show off with complaints. I know James is like, <laughs> gee, we did not bring you in here to complain and vent. But hey, some, look, I'm human sometimes. I hope you guys are starting off your Monday morning great. Got your hot cup of joe or tea or That's water right. or whatever it is that you drink in the morning or some good breakfast. And Dave? Yeah. How come you ain't ever invited me over to your crib to watch the game? Oh. To, my, to my what? My <laughs> your house. Oh, my house. Yeah. yeah. Crib well, equals uh, home. Uh, I didn't want. I listened on the radio. Well, you didn't. If, if you you going to say I didn't want what? I didn't watch it. I was. Listening oh, you didn't to want the, you what? I didn't watch the game. I was listening oh. on the radio. So Everything if, in me makes me feel like you're saying you didn't want to and you no, would no, no. not want to invite if, me if, to your house. If you want to sit in the car with me and listen on the radio together, I mean, that's fine. It might be a bonding Can experience. Can we have so. kale and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> this is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Uh, we, we have sort of the, uh, the closing chapter to uh, a story here of someone I've known for quite a while. His name is Jeff Siddiqui. He's uh, the founder of American Muslims of Puget Sound. And, and we first met in the wake of uh, 9-11 for, for obvious reasons. But um, uh, And we talked before about your, your heart transplant. You came down with heart disease. Yes. And you're doing well now. You've got somebody else's heart. You know the family of the of the donor. Yes. Become, you've become active in, uh, in uh, organ uh, donation. But as part of that ordeal, you had well, – well, tell me what you had planned in case you required a, an untimely funeral. Well, at the time, I was uh, pretty sure that uh, I was going nowhere but, you know, um, up or down somewhere, but not not of this <laughs> world anymore. Right. So I thought, well, my funeral, uh, I, I'm sure there would be a number of people there um, – Maybe most of them would be Muslims. Maybe there would be a whole bunch of other faiths as well. And I thought, you know, in dying, there should be a message that people get rather than just, okay, so he's dead, now bury him. Uh, So I asked three of my friends, a rabbi, a pastor, and an imam, if they would each come and give a five-minute service at the funeral. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to send the message out that that 
none of us have a mono- monopoly on God. That uh, it doesn't matter who we we pray to as long as we are good human beings. That's what's more important. So this is going to be a Jewish, Christian, Muslim funeral. Um, well, it was going to be a Muslim funeral with a, a rabbi and a pastor additionally giving their prayers. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, just, just to kind of underscore the fact that... that it doesn't matter which club we yeah. belong to. I mean, this has been a cause of yours, though. And so and so, is it fair to say you wanted to use your own funeral <laughs> to send this uh, ecumenical message? One last time. One last time, yeah. Well, it turned out you didn't need the funeral, fortunately, so that's good. So uh, what did you do instead? Well, um, about three years later, or two and a half years later, my daughter announced that she was going to get married. Mm-hmm. The young fellow is a wonderful, wonderful human being. I couldn't have asked for a better person. And he is a Jew. So, but my the, the original plan was to have a Muslim wedding, but I thought, no, uh, we have mothers who are Christian and we have the groom who is Jewish and I'm Muslim. So I called my three rabbi friends and I said, look, um, sorry, you can't be at my funeral, but would you do me the honor of being at the wedding and each of you do a faith wedding in your own faith. So three weddings in one? Uh, essentially, yes. So, so sequential or? No, at the same time. At the all same three, time. All three present at the same time, mm-hmm. each one saying their prayers and blessings. Really? Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, the wedding would be done. So, well, I, I, I don't think I've been to a Muslim wedding. I've been to a Jewish wedding where you break the glass. Did you break the glass? Yes, they did. Wow. And there was a, a, um, a canopy. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, yeah, it was a fully Jewish, fully Muslim, fully Christian wedding. And I'm just trying to think of the mechanics of this. So there, there was nothing uh, incompatible between the three faiths? No. They all, you know, made their blessings. They mm-hmm. all prayed for good life to the couple. They mm-hmm. all asked the bride and groom if they were willing to be married. And they all said, also, by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it it was essentially a repeat, repeat, repeat for the oh. three things. Did did they kiss three times? You know, I was really uh, too engrossed to to notice, <laughs> but but well, now that you mention it, they they kissed once they at kissed the once. at the very end when everything was over and it was finally signed off by three different <laughs> groups. Yeah. So it was a single interfaith kiss then. Uh, yeah, I imagine. Well, I- <laughs> Well, if if any wedding should stick, I guess this should be it, huh? Well, I, I, I again, wanted people to understand that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how you marry or who you marry. It, the person is more important than the faith. Yeah, of course. Well, I think anybody, if you ask, would say that. And yet uh, we still have these uh, these deep divisions. Or or do we? I mean, speaking for your experience from your experience in this area, as someone who was, I mean, your profile obviously isn't as high as it was in the, you know, aftermath of 9-11. No. We were doing interviews all the time and you, know, you were a, a public figure. Um, day to day, do you find as a Muslim much religious tension anymore? Well, it depends. Uh, unfortunately, religion and politics are not that far apart. Mm-hmm. And so there are there are there are still People who like to profit from fear mongering, which leads to hate mongering. And you got to find a, 
a, a group to hate that is uh, that doesn't cost anything. So it's a free hit. In the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even in the 70s, you could take bashes at uh, blacks, mm-hmm. and it was, um, you know, a cost-free bash. In fact, you got extra popularity points. Today, that is a costly uh, exercise. Uh, you can't bash Hispanics. You can't bash uh, any other groups. But, hey, Muslims are still a free hit. And I I'm, I see more of it than I care to. But, uh, yeah, there are, there are whole political platforms built on that. Mm. So how do you change that? I hear politicians talking about we need to end racism. I see it on the back of football helmets, <laughs> you know. But it, it, it seems to me it just takes time, doesn't it? It takes courage. Um, time is not as important. Look at uh, black integration into the military. Eisenhower issued an order and it was done. It was not like, oh, let's slowly bring five people in and ten people in and a hundred people in. Uh, he issued the, the order as commander-in-chief. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, we just did an interview on that. It, it wasn't until like 1948. Yes. I mean, initially, they were uh, blacks were in separate regiments and mm-hmm. white soldiers didn't think they could fight mm-hmm. until they found out that they could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it takes courage. It takes leadership and courage. If the If the leadership in this country decide they want to do something, they will. Um, I'm, uh, I mean, this is not just a Republican thing. Uh, when the Democrats came in after Bush, uh, Obama didn't change anything. The FBI was still coming after us as hard and fast as you can. They're still collecting our scalps today. Nobody wants to do anything about it because that's not seen as patriotic. Jeff Siddiqui is the founder of American Muslims of Puget Sound. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.